it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Programme. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and of course, today is Wednesday, which means coming up in about an hour or so, we'll have our weekly roundtable, Armchair Politics, and uh, political operative Bobby Clayton Walton will be joining our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki on the left and Henry Hatter on the right, for two hours of commentary and analysis about headlines in the worlds of politics and current events, so I hope you'll stay with us for that. But in the meantime, we're going to talk about uh, some politics going on right here in the state of Michigan, and uh, there was at, uh, at the very beginning, there were 12 candidates for governor. It became 10 when it was time to turn in the petitions, and when the petitions went to be verified, it went down to five. And one of those five candidates that uh, will be on the ballot is joining me uh, by phone, Ralph Reban. Uh, Ralph, good morning. Welcome to the show. Hey, Tom. Good morning as well to you and your listeners. This um, primary race for governor has turned into almost kind of an Agatha Christie story. <laughs> it has. There are so many unanswered questions about the whole thing. I. I'm laughing at your terminology, but in my heart's heavy for the other ones that were, were disqualified. You know, I, I don't think they had a clue what was coming. I don't think anybody had a clue what was coming, and it, may, it raises a lot of questions. Well, and, you know, I had uh, Mike Brown on the show right after he dropped out of the race. He was one of the ones that was knocked off the ballot by the uh, um, uh, Michigan uh, ballot or election uh commission whatever the the exact title is and i asked him this question i'll ask you this question we'll get two different perspectives one who got knocked off and one who stayed on the ballot um do you think that the 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 qualifications the procedures the petition requirements are are too cumbersome well, I will say that it was a huge mountain for us to climb. I'm not sure how to define cumbersome as you're using it, but I will say that it was a, a major effort. And I can't say enough good about our volunteers who got everything from 10 on one page and mailed it in to people who got thousands. And, you know, th these folks were motivated. Our volunteers were and still are 100% behind my campaign, and uh, they were able to you know, watch and listen uh, with anticipation, with expectation, knowing that we would we would be cleared on it because we all worked hard on this, and it, it was just amazing to see uh, the, the difference of approach from volunteers to paid people. And we saw the differences at 
uh, gun shows and home shows. Uh, our volunteers were, uh, you know, actively working to get people on our signature sheets, and others uh, were just playing on their phones. Well, Ralph, I, I had to chuckle a little bit. I was looking at your website, and I saw this picture of your family, and it's huge. I mean, <laughs> it's just this great big family. I thought, well, that's how he got all his petitions signed. <laughs> he, he just had everybody in the family signed, and he was covered. <laughs> you got it. Well, it's funny because our grandson works at Chick-fil-A, and uh, he was talking to one of his supervisors, and she's like, your grandpa's running for a governor? And he said, yeah. She said, get me some more information. So she ended up uh, helping us, and uh, I'm not sure how many signatures she got, but it, it spread. You're absolutely right. The family was indeed involved. In fact, his dad was the one organizing the whole effort, and uh, my son Adam's a, a math genius, and uh, he owns his own company. He's a real estate uh mortgage broker, Michigan Financial. But anyway, my point is, uh, you're right. We had a big family, and the family not only extended uh, physically, but we had a, a church family that was all over the state uh, getting signatures for us. Let me ask you about that. Um, you have been, you've served as the lead pastor for Oakland uh, Hills Community Church in Farmington since 1987. You've been on a number of committees. You serve as chapman or, or chaplain, rather, for a number of uh, police associations. Um, what is it that you're not able to do in your current role that you think you could do as governor? Wow. You know, I... I think just getting the message of uh, change, the message of um, cultural change, I should be more specific on that, cultural change. You know, in, in our church and in, our, uh, in my chaplaincy with Michigan Chiefs of Police, you know, obviously I'm coming from a perspective of bringing Judeo-Christian principles back into culture. And right now my voice is, you know, limited to the two or three groups that I'm in, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's uh, suicide awareness, bringing God's perspective into that, you know, here in Farmington Hills, or whether it's at our church, you know, my, my voice is only heard in, you know, the, the circles in which I run. But the advantage with running for governor is that I've taken that message all over the state from Marquette to Monroe, and uh, boy, that flowed. That was not planned, <laughs> but it's true. Uh, you know, we've uh, we've taken the message of bringing God back into culture, and it is literally resonating, Tom, everywhere. Because, you know, we've spent $22 trillion over the last 60 years on social programs. And I, I like to ask the groups that I'm talking to, what do we have to show for it? And there really isn't anything to show except that. I mean, we have more incarcerations, we have more depression, we have more mental illness, we have more broken families. And I'm convinced that people... Uh, who are running the program right now don't understand the problem. That's why we're not getting the right solutions. And so I'm coming at it from the perspective that I've seen God change individual lives and I've seen him change families. And the question I ask is why can't he change culture and make Michigan a state? Uh, our campaign vision is to make Michigan a lighthouse to the nation. So why can't the culture of Michigan so change where instead of neighbors and family members are angry and frustrated with one another, can't we really, by God's grace, bring back love for one another? And I'm convinced we will. That's why it's one of my uh, values, truth, respect, dignity, and love. When you made the decision to run for governor, and I ask a lot of candidates this, especially uh, candidates who maybe haven't run for office or, or at least statewide office, um, 
when you told your friends and family about this, did did they think you might be a little crazy? No, they were. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> I'm the one who thinks I'm crazy because I walked away from a you know my ministry job that my ministry that I've been at for 35 years, the same church, and I would have never imagined doing what I'm doing. But um, uh, they they were all supportive. In fact, the day that I mentioned it at church, I told everybody I was going to. Uh, run for governor, everybody at church stood up and clapped. And then, Tom, no kidding, they all sat down and started crying because they knew that I wouldn't be there anymore. And uh, it's been a huge transition. I mean, I've been at the same church for 35 years, but, you know, all of our friends, and that's why I sought out counsel. I sought out counsel from police chiefs, from uh, friends, from church family, from other pastors, saying, what do you guys think? Is this something, you know, I feel God's calling me to do this, but what do you think? And everybody was 100% behind me. Once you were in the race, I, I am, am curious about what exactly transpired at, at the um, Detroit Chamber of Commerce uh, that, that hosts the um, Mackinac Policy Conference on Mackinac Island planned a debate for the candidates running for governor, but they were only going to include five and you were not included initially. What happened after the, the five that ended up getting knocked off the ballot got moved off? Did, did they have to come back and say, oh, uh, I guess you're in? <laughs> they sent an invitation to me and asked me if I wanted to, um, if I wanted to come. And at that point, they had requirements for vaccinations or no swabs and proof of uh, COVID-free. And I wasn't going to do that. I, I had no interest. In fact, I was, I was interviewed on a, uh, a show in, out of Lansing and interviewed, or I was up in uh, Alcona, Michigan, and the group asked me, are you going to that? And I said, absolutely not. And my reason for that was because I'm not getting a, a COVID shot and I'm not going to get my nose swab. And uh, I, don't, I don't think either one of those are extremely effective. And so as I uh, shared those two things, um, between that time of getting the letter and sharing that at a couple events, I then found out that they had changed their policy. They said no one at the debate has to get a vaccination or prove vaccination. No one has to prove that they are COVID-free. And so when they released that requirement for the debate, I said, I'm in, I'm, I'm going to go. But, uh, yeah, they sent me a letter and asked if I was interested. And initially I was not because I'm, I'm not going to bow to those, uh, those demands um, because it would be going against my conscience, and I couldn't do that. But when they released those requirements, waived those requirements, I was in. What, what is your rationale? What does your conscience tell you about um, what precautions should or shouldn't be taken to fight disease, whether it's a common cold or COVID-19? Well, that's a great, uh, great question. I'm not against vaccinations. I've had all the vaccinations from a little kid, polio and everything else. Um, if a vaccination works, I don't have a problem with it. But as you know, we were told if you get the COVID shot, you won't get COVID. If you get the COVID shot, you won't spread it. If you get the COVID shot, it'll only stay in the area where you, you know, got the shot. Uh, we know that's not true. It's, been, it's shown up, the spike protein has shown up in kidneys and livers. 
Um, you know, and, and so all of these things that they said weren't true. On top of that, the CDC redefined vaccination three times in the last two years to match whatever this COVID vaccine is. And so in my mind, as I'm looking at shots and vaccine vaccinations, especially COVID, because I was skeptical about the whole COVID thing uh, initially, though I had a friend who died from it, um, you know, all of the projections of death and destruction and everybody, uh, I, I thought we were entering the Black Plague again. Um, when, when all those projections came out, and I began to realize that, you know, people were saying, well, you can have COVID and you don't know it. You can spread it and you don't know it. I'm just like, yeah, that doesn't sound like medicine to me. You, you should be able to detect something. So anyway, I just basically said, I'm not getting the vaccine, I'm not getting the shot. And so what drives me, uh, there are several factors in that. First of all, I am convinced that because people are made in God's image, uh, just as God is sovereign over his world, uh, he has made people in his image and people are sovereign over their worlds, which includes their bodies. So if someone wants to get the vaccine, I'm for medical freedom. They can get that. It's between them and their doctor. If they don't want to get it, they shouldn't be forced to get it because it's between them and God. And so that's one of the things that drives me. Another thing is um, I have friends who are uh, medical doctors who are brilliant men and women, and uh, one of them is Dr. Randy Baker, who sued Governor Whitmer during the lockdowns. Uh, he couldn't perform surgery on people that needed surgery. She said the only thing you can do is COVID, uh, emergency, and abortion. That, those are the three things that Whitmer said you could do during her lockdowns. And he had patients that needed bariatric surgery, that needed uh, kidney surgery, that needed hernia surgery, and these people were on hold, as well as those who wanted or needed, I should say, um, uh, chemotherapy, et cetera, or dialysis. But he sued her, opened up Michigan and uh, medically in May of 2021, I'm sorry, May of 2020. And then uh, in 20, in November, uh, it was his lawsuit that the Michigan Supreme Court voted uh, seven to nothing that Whitmer had exceeded her um, 1945 emergency uh, act. And her, her every, every, every emergency order she had exact, um, executive order that she had issued was um, deemed illegal and unconstitutional. So they were all wiped away. But anyway, Randy's a brilliant man. And as I talked to him, he's on my team, by the way, and he's, uh, he will be my uh, chief medical officer in Michigan when I become governor. Uh, he's a patriot. But anyway, my point is simply this. Um, there's such a thing, and I've talked to him about this extensively. There's such a thing as um, medical research. And there are we all know that, but there are different levels of that. Um, it goes from level one is randomized control trials all the way down to expert opinion. Randomized, contro randomized control trials, um, there have never been any robust ones done on the COVID vaccine. And the, the result is that now we don't really know how effective or ineffective it is. They test the Ralph. same group. I, yes, sir, I'm, I'm I hate to interrupt, but I have to no. take a short break here. Um, are you able to stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some Absolutely. more? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Interrupt me anytime. I feel like a hockey announcer trying to get so much in and not come up for air. <laughs> well, it moves pretty <laughs> fast on the ice. Ralph Reban for Governor is uh, my guest this hour. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming the show... Uh, we have some messages as well, so stay tuned.
Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You know, you've always got great questions and you know the material and you, and you care about it and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I'm willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods. And in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Babies come with lots of decisions. Cloth or disposable? Crib or bassinet? So when it comes to protection, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. 
Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with uh, one of the uh, GOP candidates for governor in the primary coming up in August, the one that's still on the ballot, I might add. Ralph Reban joins me by phone. Ralph, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Hey, it is my pleasure, Tom. Seriously, uh, you're in a great, you're an amazing uh, interviewer, and it's uh, you make everybody relax. Well, that's what I hope to do here. And and speaking of that, one of the things that's going to be uh, a real challenge, and you've had strong words on this uh, with regard to um, Governor Whitmer's um, uh, efforts to try to. Uh, shut down the um, the existing anti-abortion law from 1931 in Michigan, uh, the ban on uh, abortions that would go into effect if, as some people are predicting, the uh, Supreme Court uh, overturns Roe v. Wade. Um, and and you've had some some strong things to say about the governor's comments about protecting uh, reproductive rights as it's uh, being referred to. Um, what, would you want to see the 1931 law just go into effect, or do you see some, some variation of that, that that needs to be adopted once the um, power goes back to the states? Yes, um, I, you're right. I have had some very uh, strong words to say against Whitmer, uh, Governor Whitmer's um, position on this, because if, if you were really pro-woman, you would really want to care about the little girls that are being aborted and they never have an opportunity to take their first breath. If you're really pro-woman, you would share the news that, as I have experienced in my pastoral ministry, talking to women who considered an abortion, talking to women who've had an abortion, dealing with the aftermath of women who've had an abortion, that the suicide rates are two to three times higher in women who've had an abortion. None of that ever comes out. So if we're talking about women's health, we have to really address the big picture. And all that Governor Whitmer's looking at is what she would call choice for reproductive freedom or whatever. And, you know, Tom, it's... It's like black and white to me. It's, it's, this child is a life from conception. There's such a thing as personhood at conception. The, the Bible tells me that God knit us together in our mother's womb. It tells us that before we were ever born, he knew us, which means he had a plan for our lives. And I, I, this whole big picture of missing that, taking God out of the culture, taking God out of the classroom, uh, you know, and taking him out of uh, the courtroom, all of these different ways that we have basically removed God in the last 60 years uh, have brought us to where we are today. So, you know, when, when you don't have God in the picture, of course, you're going you're gonna to have a perspective that life is disposable. And we know so, so much more than we did in 1973. We have ultrasounds. They didn't have ultrasounds. The Abby Johnson story, 
um, uh, the a movie Unplanned. Everybody should watch that. She was the youngest Planned Parenthood director in the history of Planned Parenthood. And when she observed an abortion and the baby recoiling against that on the screen, it changed her life forever. Though she had had two abortions prior to that, uh, she walked away from that and exposed that, that Planned Parenthood is a money-making machine. It's not a woman's health organization. But the... Um the 1931 law that would go into effect only allows exceptions when the life of the mother is threatened. Um, and, and some Republicans in states that are going through similar transitions as they look to, you know, what will we do, what laws do we have, are considering uh, altering the, the existing laws to include... Uh, rape and incest is is there a version of um uh, an abortion ban that you think is especially the right one i don't think there's a version of it i think life is life not i think i should just say life is life and even as the 1931 abortion ban states except for the life of the mother i understand what that's saying but think with me for just a minute, Tom, and I, I trust your listeners will, will hear this uh, and think about it as well. When a woman's life is in danger because she's pregnant, she doesn't go to the abortion clinic. She goes to the hospital. And everybody in that hospital cares about the mother's life and the viability of that child. Years ago, what was it, 32, 35 weeks, you could deliver a baby early. Now we can deliver a baby at 22 weeks and put it in an incubator and that baby will live. We can also, you probably just heard recently, there was a baby removed from the mother's womb. Surgery was performed, baby put back in the mother's womb. We have such technology. So my point is, even the 1931 ban, the wording of it, I understand the concept, but it's not an abortion. Nobody's ripping a baby limb for limb out of a, out of a mother in that situation. It's, how can we save each life? And, and you've got two different teams. My daughter was involved in a, uh, a delivery of a little girl who had trisomy uh, 19, and she had birth defects from conception. And the doctors at U of M tried to encourage her to abort, and she said, I'm not going to do that. I want the best possible surgeons to help my little girl live. They told us she would never breathe. She lived 21 days. She didn't die because she couldn't breathe. They performed surgery on her right after she was born, and she ended up dying because she got sepsis while she was in the hospital, and that ended up killing her. But, you know, that, that's, doctors want to save lives. So even the 1931 abortion uh, law right now, it, it, it's, it's poorly worded. It's poorly worded. So when it comes to rape and incest, um, you know, I'm looking for justice, Tom, when it comes to those kind of things. I, it's, it's tragic. It's tragic that a woman would be raped by a family member, a dad, an uncle, a brother, whoever. I get that. But if we're looking for justice, it doesn't mean we take the life or we kill the baby. It means we punish the person who's responsible for that. And we make it so that they can't ever do that again. Or we make the, the crime so high that they don't want to do that again. And, you know, that's, that's the key thing. And I, I, there's a gal out there. Um, I, I just lost her name, but she's uh, here in Michigan. Uh, she was the product of a rape, and she has a very productive 
you know, a life telling people about how, you know, we should not abort babies because she would have not had a chance to live. And uh, she is going all over the country uh, talking about this so-called exception that people think is more generous, uh, more, more caring. But again, we have to come back to it. Uh, when, a, when a young girl is raped by a father or a family member, it's like three months into the program, before into the pregnancy, before she realizes that she's pregnant because she's so young she doesn't even know what happened. And the problem is that baby could have had a viable life outside of the womb and to tear that child limb from limb is just unconscionable. I can't even imagine how a civilized society can think that's legitimate. Well, and I think you touched on something, Ralph, that's important to uh, to maybe underscore at this point before moving on, and that's our understanding of when life begins has changed dramatically since 1973. Yes, yes. You are right. Absolutely. Well, let's um, let me let me ask something else. Um, in the course of the response to COVID, and Governor Whitmer was one of the more strict governors, um, as as you well know, with regard to uh, um, enacting uh, whether it was closures or bans or or mandates for masks and vaccinations and so on. And a lot of those things were done using emergency powers, some of which have been overturned uh, since then, um, and and using executive power, um, like, um, oh, what are they called? Executive orders and, orders, and those yeah. kinds of things. And and I guess my my question is, how do you view a governor's role in leading in a crisis is it um, is it through executive uh, authority or is it um, something different than that? I, I as governor, let me just tell you how I will do that. It's of course easy to Monday morning quarterback after the the crisis, but I will mention to you that as I look at. A governor's role. A governor's role is to govern with the other branches of government, not to take over the other branches of government. And so even if I was in that crisis and I were in her shoes at that time, I would have sat down with the legislature and discussed with them a plan for the entire state of Michigan. Instead, she unilaterally locked down the entire state, imposed draconian rules that were just outrageous, that she herself didn't even follow. And even when Dr. Randy Baker, who I mentioned in the first segment, Dr. Randy Baker brought this lawsuit before her, um, she dismissed it. She, uh, she had no concern. Uh, she wasn't even caring about that. So he went to the legislature and he talked to Democrats and they said, she's not listening to us. And so his case made so much sense that he had Democratic legislators on his side when he ended up, you know, moving forward with this. And as I look at what she did, she clearly was unilaterally trying to run the state. And our step, if you don't understand the separation of powers and yet the unity of how powers work together, you'll do what she did. So for me, I would have never done that. I would have sat down. I would have called an emergency session of the legislature. Let's talk about it. Where is COVID? Where is it spreading? How is it? If, you know, I mean, she shut down the whole state. And in the U.P., you know, they had hardly any cases. 
And, you know, you can't treat everybody the same way. One size does not fit all. And in, in my opinion, that's the biggest mistake she made. And if you don't have a governor who realizes that, you're going to end up with what we have because uh, bad consequences come from bad decisions. And that's exactly what happened. What do you think the, um, the role of the governor should be going forward? What, what would be two or three things uh, on your agenda starting day one? Day one is to tell people the truth. They, I, I have to tell people truth. You know, I, I'm big on truth. I, I believe in T, truth with a capital T. Not opinions, but rather truth. So going forward, I'm going to speak about truth. I want accountability. I want transparency. And, um, you know, the interesting thing is that Michigan and Maine are only, I'm sorry, Michigan and Massachusetts are only two states without open record laws. And when I announced on the Capitol steps May 10th last year that I was running for governor, I told the, the citizens of Michigan and the people that were there that I will make Michigan an open record state because people in Michigan need to know what goes on in the governor's office. You shouldn't be able to hide behind uh um, closed records like Robert Gordon or nursing homes. I tell people that here's how my faith comes out, Tom. One day, one day I'm going to stand before God. I'm going to give an account for everything I do and everything I say. And so if that's going to happen, why shouldn't the people of Michigan know what happens in my office? And so I want to pass that law, not because I'm going to hide behind anything, but because I don't want the next governors to hide behind anything either. And I want people of Michigan, citizens to know what they're, what's going on in the governor's office and in the legislature. So truth, transparency through the uh, uh, bringing back um, or by making Michigan an open record state. And I want, I want kids, young kids, when they, when they look at me as governor, I want them to say, man, I want to be governor. Governor Revan did a great job. And someday I want to be governor rather than all of the cynicism that goes on about government and leadership. I want to bring back integrity to the office. Um, in as much, uh, Ralph, as you're running for the Republican nomination to uh, challenge Governor Whitmer, um, do you consider yourself a Republican? I do. I've read the entire platform, uh, and I agree with everything that's in it. If, if anyone reads the Republican platform, yeah, yeah, I was just I was impressed with it. Uh, and so, yes, I consider myself a Republican. And a lot of Republicans, um, and, and it's become almost kind of a cliche that Republicans want to cut taxes, but they don't seem to want to cut programs. How would you behave differently or try and lead differently from the governor's office with regard to the state's uh, budget and, and the expenditures, revenue versus uh, expenditure? Well, first of all, I've taken the uh, governor's pledge uh, from Americans for Tax Reform, and I've uh, signed that pledge uh, to the citizens of Michigan, and it's on record that I will not raise taxes. But when it comes to programs in the budget, I have combed through the budget, Tom, and I see all kinds of waste, from corporate welfare to um, something as small as uh, the uh, Michigan State Police I think it was in 2012 or 2014, went from Harley-Davidson American-made motorcycles to BMW motorcycles, which are more expensive to not only buy but maintain. And you ask yourself, why would you do that? Well, 
Uh, this isn't picking on anybody, but there was a, a gentleman who was in the Michigan State Police who retired, and he took a job at, uh, with BMW, and because of his influence with Michigan State Police, he was able to make that happen. And so I'm looking to cut everything that I can uh, in this budget. I've even said at the Livingston debate that I would remove uh, the, the money that's going to our public universities right now. Uh, many of them have the endowments that would keep them going for hundreds of years. And why do we continue to fund a university when people in Michigan are going without food, they're on the street? Why do we do that? I, I, I didn't want, I, I was very clear, taking the money from the university, but making sure that our students have money to go to trade schools or colleges or wherever they want to go. So I'm not saying I'm not in favor of education. What I said was um, we have such a, it's like the state uh, government. We have such an administrative state, whether it's in government or whether it's in universities, that it's just outrageous. There's just too much money wasted there. So I, I have what's called Operation Roundtable, and um, we are going to bring together citizens from Michigan. We'll have a politician, somebody from, you know, the Appropriations Committee sitting on this at this roundtable. But we're going to have citizens going through the budget looking for areas that we can cut that we don't really need. And there are a lot of areas uh, in that other than the two I just or the three I just mentioned. So yes, I, I'm I'm big on cutting programs. <clears throat> Ralph, um what are some other high priority items for you um what for example what what can we do to better attract business and ultimately jobs great question um you know tom as i thought about this and as i've put my uh, you know my 35 years uh running a church and uh uh by the way, can I just throw a little uh, illustration here? I, I spoke with uh, Governor Mike Huckabee. Uh, as you know, Mike Huckabee was a pastor. He became governor of uh, Arkansas. Then he ran for president of the United States. And I asked him what it was like to transition from being a pastor to governor. And he said, Ralph, there are people that are going to dismiss you. They're going to say a pastor doesn't know how to run the government. But he said pastors are CEOs. They deal with people, budgets, and problems. And he said, that's all I ever did as a governor. I dealt with people, budgets, and problems. And so as I look at the, I'm sorry, I lost the question you just asked me. About attracting businesses oh, right, and right, ultimately right. Yeah, jobs. So, exactly. So CEOs and that. Um, you know, government does not create jobs. It can only create an environment for jobs. And so my goal is basically threefold. One, lower the budget. Two, as I've just described. Two, we want to get rid of government regulations. Everywhere I go, whether it's the dentist's office, the doctor's office, I've talked to dairy farmers, cattle farmers, farmer farmers who are growing wheat and corn in our state. They tell me, everybody, even teachers have told me that government regulations are killing us. They're strangling us. And that's what affects businesses. So we want to get rid of the regulatory state. I mean, it's out of control. We want, and so that's the next thing. The other thing is I want to lower the corporate tax to 2.5, which is pretty much a standard in many of the states that are growing right now. Uh, the corporate tax has been lowered. And so by giving that type of environment, plus making Michigan's culture attractive to people, where people would want to come here because 
neighbors are getting along and crime is dropping and uh, you know that that there's just so many opportunities to raise a family in the state and start a business. It's that type of thing that will turn around Michigan in terms of bringing back the economy. I told people last night, I said, you know, we could have the best darn roads in the whole country. We could have, you know, whatever. But if people are murdering each other and hating their neighbors, who's going to want to move to that type of environment? So um, I, I've been, you know, as I, as I said on a two-and-a-half-minute video, my 35 years of experience as a pastor has given me unique insight into the healing the family and repairing our state. And I, I certainly uh, would love that opportunity from uh, the citizens to, to make that happen here. Well, Ralph, we're almost out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Um, do you have a website you'd like to share? I do. It's uh, ralphrebantforgovernor.com, and my last name is spelled R-E-B-A-N-D-T. Many people add another R. They call me Rebrant, but it's just Rebant. Ralph Rebant for Governor, F-O-R, governor.com. I'm on most of the major social media platforms, and uh, people can see and what I'm up to, where I'm going, things that I've done. And uh, primarily the website's the biggest thing to see, our Lighthouse Initiative, where we want to make Michigan a lighthouse to the nation. And that Lighthouse Initiative involves four words, four values, four strategies, and four solutions. And, and do any of those solutions... Um get us a little farther toward fixing the damn roads? <laughs> <laughs> oh, indeed. You know, uh, I don't know, Tom, if you saw the billboard. We had we had them all over Michigan, but uh, one of them was, we call them Michigan Memos. And it's it's just a memo, like a memo note up on the board. It says, yeah. Dear Gretchen, it says, Dear Gretchen and Joe, don't worry about the roads anymore. We can't afford to drive. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> well, Ralph, thank you so much for spending this time with me and the listeners this morning. I appreciate it very, very much and uh, wish you the best of luck. Thank you, Tom. Uh, you're going to be hearing more about our campaign because we are gaining a lot of traction. And I, I just uh, really am so thankful for your, uh, your opportunity this morning for me. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. Again, that was uh, Ralph Rebant. Um, who is uh, one of the GOP candidates running for governor. There were 10, there are now five, and he is among them. And we'll continue to uh, meet as many of the GOP candidates running in the uh, upcoming August primary as possible between now and then. Don't forget, coming up at the top of the hour, we have our uh, weekly political roundtable, Armchair Politics. Bobby Clayton Walton will be uh, joining our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki on the left and Henry Hatter on the right for this week's two hours of uh, commentary and analysis about all the headlines in the worlds of politics and uh, current events. I hope you'll stick around for that. Um, also, if you're listening to us on WFOV, LP, our voices radio, uh, 92.1 FM in Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Herring. And we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com 
we have some messages as well and don't forget if you miss an interview or you want to go back and re-listen to an interview you can go to our website tomsumnerprogram.com and uh, find the uh, show archive under the audio tab and scroll down um, each interview is uh, divided uh, hour by hour and you just pick the date and the hour of the interview you'd like to um, review and it's it's right there for your listening enjoyment we'll be right hi back. this is joe by from the blue lions and you're listening to the tom sumner program right now the covid 19 vaccines are available to millions of americans and soon they will be available to everyone this vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? Mm. It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community School. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Wisecarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Lone Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee. 
Emergency Health Plan. Quiplet Technology. My Community College. Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to tom at tomsumnerprogram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology. Engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Here is some more of the rich humor of Brooks Hayes of Arkansas, special assistant to the president. My grandson, a 15-year-old red-headed, wise-cracking high school lad, um, loves to cut me down to size. This grandson was in to see me recently. He saw some books on my desk, passed over some that I had produced, only two. I'm, I haven't produced them in great volume, but uh, one, I, and I make this reference, uh, believe me, with some sense of modesty, the first book was one produced for the Baptist when I was elected president of the convention. They thought they should have a book. <laughs> and then later, the University of North Carolina asked me for a book on the Little Rock story. My uh, father was asked when this book came out, uh, Mr. Hayes, have you read Brooks's last book? He said, I hope so. <laughs> and uh, then uh, the... Um, but uh, this lad uh, didn't comment on those two books. He looked at the third one, which said, How to Get and Keep the Job You Want. He said he was four years late getting that one to you. <laughs> but uh, I've been quite happy in this assignment. Uh, even uh, the uh, proximity to Arthur Schlesinger is enjoyable. The president put me there, I think, so if any hard questions came up, uh, Mr. Schlesinger had me. And, uh, <laughs> told someone in a dinner meeting, uh, someone I was with in Washington at a banquet recently, uh, just that, and he said, well, the trouble with uh, you and Arthur Schlesinger is that you're both answering questions nobody's asked, <laughs> uh, which, uh, which I submit was a thoroughly partisan comment. We're at the east end of the White House, and we're easy to reach, and I hope if you're there, you'll come to see us. Uh, someone said, Mr. Hayes, are you close to Mr. Kennedy? And I said, philosophically and politically and intellectually, yes, very close. I said, physically, uh, I'm over here on the east end. It's like the little lady said when I asked her in Pope County if she had seen Halley's Comet. She said, just from a distance. <laughs> In this election year, in particular, I have to be careful. There is a difference, you know. I remember one year when one of our colleagues had been through the South, and when he got back, he confronted an Alabama member with uh, this uh, comment. said, Bill, you're in trouble. I've been in your district, and Henry Wilson's announced against you. Well, he said, I'm not surprised. I know that fellow. He's a thief and a crook and a liar. He's the kind of man that would run against me. <laughs> well, he said, I've got more bad news. said, George Johnson's going to announce against you tomorrow. 
Well, he said he's the same type of individual. He's a thoroughly evil person. He's lucky to be out of the penitentiary. And then he said, look, I'm just kidding you. I saw them both. They're for you and sent you their regards. <laughs> and, uh, Produce this comment. Well, see what you've made me do. I've said some ugly things about two of the sweetest, finest men I've ever known. <laughs> I remembered uh, the experience of 1933. I ran in a special election in that year for a seat in the Congress, the one that I was to win uh, nine years later. But in 1933... The Depression year, and it was a terrible year, and this is a rural district, remember. Uh, maybe you suffered, too, from the Depression, but as one of my farmer friends said, Brooks, this Depression wouldn't have been near so bad if it hadn't come along right in the middle of hard times. <laughs> that to a Georgia audience not long ago, and the chairman said, well, Mr. Hayes, Arkansas was not alone. Georgia had it, too. I said to him, he said, uh, I asked a fellow once, do you remember 1933? He said, sure. That's the year I broke my arm. And I said, uh, broke your arm? He said, yes, I was eating my breakfast, and I fell out of the persimmon tree. <laughs> so... Uh, One of my first lessons, I should say, if you will permit me to enter this delicate area, were in this little church down in Arkansas, a little congregation. And in uh, my first lessons, really, in democracy, were in that Baptist church. You non-Baptists, forgive me. This is not propaganda. It just happened to be a Baptist church, and I am a Baptist. I'm almost as bad as Brother Puckett, who opposed the consolidation of our church with the Christian church. He said, I'm a Baptist, and nobody's going to make a Christian out of me. And, and, uh, and sometimes there'd be differences over whether to buy uh, some, a new organ or not. And sometimes those are interesting discussions. I remember when they wanted to buy a new chand uh, buy a chandelier. Not a new one, but because the ladies wanted a chandelier. And the, one of the deacons said, well, now we can't do it. Said if we went to order it, we wouldn't know how to spell it. <laughs> and said... Uh, and, and, and he said, anyway, uh, if we got one, nobody knew how to play it. <laughs> And he said, anyway, I'm telling you, I think all the deacons agree that if we're going to spend any money on anything new, we need a new light fixture. <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Program, don't you know? Go on, go on, get out of here. <laughs> 